Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight we will be in the first chapter of Colossians in verses 21 through 22, through 23, pardon me. That is the first chapter of Colossians, verses 21 through 23. And the text reads, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you would, please join me in a word of prayer. God, thank you for letting your people gather here tonight, and thank you for your word. God, thank you for bringing us to places in life where we are wholly and completely dependent on you. God, tonight, let us digest and let us understand and let us apply the word to our lives. Hallowed be thy name. May all glory be unto you. Amen. All right, let's get to work. Uh, Let's begin with the very beginning by unpacking that phrase, and you who once were alienated. Alienation is the natural condition of man. Every person is naturally estranged from God. Now, we are all very familiar with the concept of estrangement. Parents become estranged from children. Spouses become estranged from other spouses. It is an unfortunate but very common part of our world, and as such, we are familiar with the concept of estrangement. Now, when, say, two spouses become estranged from one another, what is it that we typically say? Typically, we say that something came between them. We say, oh, they were doing fine, but then something just came between them. Something, some type of barrier separated them from each other. And as a consequence, their relationship became strained, and ultimately, they became estranged from each other. The same is true with the relationship between God and man. At one point, man and God were in intimate relationship. Man eagerly sought God. And God had open personal fellowship with man. We see in Genesis that Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the evening. What a perfect picture that is of the intimate relationship that was once shared by man and God. However, man disobeyed God. And ever since this act of disobedience, something has come between man and God. A barrier now separates them. And as such, man is estranged from God. Now, this estrangement, this is true for all people, for the world as a whole. The world we live in today is one which is fundamentally estranged, alienated from God. Here on this earth, there is no walking with God in the cool of the evening. The type of intimate relationship which all people living in the world once had with God is no longer natural due to this estrangement, this barrier, this sin that's come between man and God and has separated them. However, man is not only alienated from God, our fallen condition is much more depraved than mere alienation, than mere separation. We are not merely separated from God, we are actively in opposition to God. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, not only alienated, but alienated and hostile 
in mind, alienated from and at enmity with God. To be alienated is to be separated from God in such a way that we can never come to him on our own. To be hostile in mind is to be actively and completely opposed to God, to be enemies and haters of God. We naturally hate God. And I'm not using strong language here. That is the natural condition that we find ourselves in. Enemies and haters of God. Romans 8-7 fleshes out this point in more detail. Romans 8-7 reads, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, hates God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Being hostile in mind, we have minds set on the flesh. And the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Moreover, such a hostile mind is completely alienated from God, as we see in the text where it says that the mind which is set on the flesh not only refuses to submit to God's law, but it cannot submit to God's law. Now let's unpack this a little bit. We not only disobey God, but we are unable to obey God. In our sinful condition, we are so alienated and so hostile and so enveloped in our hatred to God, so completely separated from God and consumed with our hatred of God, that not only do we persistently sin against God, we can do nothing except sin against God. This inability for our hostile minds to submit to the law of God, to the will of the Lord, is indicative of our alienation from God. Man is separated from God. Man cannot fix this. And man does not want to fix this. Now the objection is raised in some theological circles that this idea of total alienation from God is incompatible with human nature. That is to say that some are uncomfortable with the notion that salvation, reconciliation of fallen sinful man and perfect holy God is wholly the work of God. Typically, those who wish to make this objection argue something along the lines of people seek God all the time. God wouldn't call people to himself. It's, it's got to be the people who freely choose God of their own free will. What about the seekers? Love that word, seekers. To put it simply, there is no such thing as a seeker. At least not in the sense that there is anyone in the world who naturally seeks out God. Romans makes that abundantly clear. No one seeketh after me, no, not one. Sure, people might seek out a God, but no sinner, hostile to God by his own nature, naturally seeks out God himself in his holiness. The idea that anyone would seek out God on their own is contrary to the scriptures and to a cursory look at human nature. We have seen that human beings are totally divorced from the presence of God and thoroughly antagonistic towards the person of God, towards Him, so that seeking after God is fundamentally against who we are as lost sinners. Rather, we essentially hate God. We hate God because He is holy, and we are not. We hate God because He is perfect, and we are fallen. We hate God because we have minds which are set on the flesh. And the flesh is evil. And having our mindset on that which is evil, we are antagonistic to that which is good. 
and God being the ultimate good, we are the most antagonistic towards Him as a matter of having our mindset on the flesh. It's only logical. Have your mindset on the flesh. Mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. You're hostile to God. Now that's a little bit of a mouthful. So I'll just I'll reiterate this one last time. What I mean to say is that because we are hostile in mind, we are hostile towards God. Our minds are hostile to God because they are set on the flesh. Now, perhaps I can clear up some of my terms here. By the flesh, I am referring to our own nature, to our sinful desires and urges. And these sinful desires and urges come from us. And generally speaking, these desires and urges, I mean, if we can apply the term sinful to them, they're probably not very good. I know that a lot of the things I desire to do are certainly not very PG, to say the least. In other words, our minds are naturally turned towards ourselves. And as such, we seek to set ourselves up as the highest being. Now, uh, how many times has anyone in here heard the phrase, look out for number one tossed around? See, this is a very petty example but it is indicative of the general self-centeredness that is part and parcel of human nature. One doesn't have to look further than consumer culture to see that human beings love to build themselves up. There are few things quite as human as the worship of self and the worship of our own sinful, fallen, and disgusting desires. As we see in Romans... The mind which is set on the flesh, the mind which is focused so intently on our sinful desires and the deification of the self, is hostile to God. Now, this proves to be rather problematic for us. If we are in this condition of enmity towards God, a condition in which we are estranged from our Creator, and if we cannot and will not do anything to try to change this relationship to God, this relationship of estrangement, actually this lack of relationship would probably be a better way to put it. If we cannot and will not do anything to change this, then we have no hope whatsoever. I want to restate this so that we all properly grasp the gravity of the predicament that we all find ourselves in naturally. We can do nothing, nothing, nothing to get right with God No action of ours can make us right with God. Nothing we do changes the fact that we are at enmity with God. Nothing we do changes the fact that we are dead with nothing but ourselves and our own desires. Our alienation and hostility from and towards the source of all life and goodness leaves us with nothing but death and sin and wickedness. Our lives apart from God can hardly even be termed lives. At best, they're simply a series of experiences strung together in an arbitrary order. Well, not an arbitrary order. It all comes within the will of God, but it's just an order. There is no meaning to our experiences apart from God. And this meaninglessness is part and parcel of the human experience so long as we live in alienation from and hostility towards God. And from this alienation and hostility comes participation in sin. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, sinning, that is, doing evil deeds, is the outworking of our hostility. We act out our hostility towards God by sinning against God. 
In this particular context, sin refers to any and all actions which offend God, to everything we do that violates the divine commands of the Lord and puts us under His judgment. Our sinful actions are the natural outworking of the condition which we have observed us all to be in naturally. It is only natural that the enemy of God acts against God. And the one who acts against God, who sins, doing evil deeds, is subject to the judgment of God. Now before we move on, let's recap what we have seen in the text so far. Human beings are alienated and hostile in mind, meaning that they are separated from and antagonistic towards God. Because of this, we cannot and will not do anything to bring ourselves into the type of relationship with God that we were created to have. Further, our alienation and hostility is worked out in our sinful actions, and our sinful actions put us under the righteous judgment of God. Now, if human beings are unable to come into a right relationship with God, one that allows for His glory and their salvation, and if their sins, which are the outworking of their alienation and hostility, put them under the judgment of God, then it would seem to logically follow that human beings can do nothing to get out from under this judgment. Our sins put us under the right wrath and judgment of God, and there is nothing we can do about it. If there is nothing we can do about the fact that we are separated from God, and if our hostility worked out through our sinful actions puts us at enmity with God, then the end of human existence seems to be to experience the wrath of God. That is to say, the end of human existence seems to just be hell. God would be completely in the right if He sent us all to hell, if He sent me to hell. We are, I am helpless before a just God. However, I am thankful that I am also helpless before a merciful God. The text does not end with us being alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We begin by seeing the utterly hopeless condition of every human being, alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, which bring us under the judgment and wrath of a holy God whom we offend. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. He has now reconciled. Let's focus on the first part of verse 22, which reads, He has now reconciled. Now we have established that human beings are naturally alienated from and hostile towards God. There is a barrier between ourselves and Him which estranges us from Him. And in addition to this, we want nothing to do with Him, but would rather set our minds on ourselves, and this makes us hostile towards God and haters of God. However, God is not dissuaded by this. God is not dissuaded by our hatred of him. We who once were haters of God, he has now reconciled. That is to say, God has restored the relationship which man once shared with him. 
God has overcome the barrier of sin which separates us from Him. In spite of our rebellion and hostility, despite our sin and self-worship, despite our seething hatred of Him, God loves us and provides reconciliation for us. God loves us despite our hate. Whereas we were in a state of alienation and hostility, God has brought us into a state of grace and reconciliation. Out of sheer grace, God brings sinners back to Himself, back into relationship with Him. Now, I mean, this of course begs the question, how has God done this? He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by his death. And let's unpack this last section a little more. Paul is clearly referring to the physical incarnation of Christ. Christ took on a body of flesh, which is to say that he became fully human, and as such became subject to the same sinful desires which we are. However, he did not succumb to these sinful desires because he was also fully God. The scripture makes the humanity and the divinity of Christ abundantly clear in Hebrews 4.15 when it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ took on a human nature, yet he was without sin. He was without that whole hostility working itself out in evil deeds thing. Christ was God in a human body, and Christ is God. Christ took on flesh and offered himself as the object for the judgment we were under. Christ died for us. When Christ died, he bore the full judgment of God that was reserved for us, that we had put ourselves under by our own hostility and enmity and hatred. And in doing so, he removed the barrier of sin which had estranged man from God. He takes the judgment that we garner for ourselves by our hostility and removes the barrier that we have erected for ourselves out of sin. It is through the sacrifice of God that the grace of God was worked out and reconciliation to God became possible. Reconciliation is a work of the grace of God. As such, reconciliation is only possible through the death of Christ, as He reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death. It is through His death on the cross that we may be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. That which was subject to the judgment and wrath of God may be presented holy and blameless before God purely by the grace of God. Just let that sink in for a second. We, who are naturally enemies and haters of God, actively sinning against God, can be made holy and blameless before Him. And by any work of our own? No, holy by the grace of the God whose wrath we were under. And that which has been reconciled to God has been brought back into that relationship which it had been alienated from in spite of its hostility this whole time. Because of the grace of God, we can come back into a right relationship 
with God, only through repentance and only by His body of flesh through His death on the cross. Because of the reconciliation by the death of Christ, we may be brought back into relationship with God. He has overcome the alienation which has thereunto defined us, and we can now enter into an act of relationship with God, all of this wholly by the grace of God. Now, this very, very heavy emphasis on the working of God and the inability and unwillingness of man to come into a relationship with God, well, for starters, it kind of throws that whole seeker thing out the window, but it also makes this next portion of the text a little more difficult to understand. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's look at this first portion where it reads, if indeed you continue in the faith, if if, 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 if. I think it is worth noting that the word if does not entail that our reconciliation is somehow contingent on our ability to follow Christ or maintain a relationship with God. Once we are reconciled, once peace has been made by the blood of His cross, the peace that has been made, and the peace has been made, it has been made, and once we have experienced His grace and have become reconciled to Him, we are permanently reconciled to Him. To say that somehow our reconciliation becomes void if we falter in our faith, which we should remember, I should remember, everyone does at some point, is to forget how we were reconciled in the first place, which is by the grace of God, and to make reconciliation to God about us and not about God. And this is nothing more than acting out of a mind which is set on the flesh and hostile to God. This is nothing more than blatant heresy and sin. Rather, the reconciliation which God has worked out is permanent. As we see in John 10, 28, when Christ, Christ, God Himself, kind of an important guy, tells us that those whom He has given eternal life, those whom He has reconciled by His body of flesh through His death, will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of His hand. We are saved by the grace of God, and we are kept by the grace of God. When the text reads, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, we do not see a qualifier. We see a criterion, and in hindsight, I don't really like choosing the word criterion. But I, I will explain the term a little. That is to say, we are not reconciled because we continue in the faith. But we continue in the faith because we are reconciled. And if we continue in the faith precisely because we are reconciled, then this kind of does become a criterion because this is the hallmark by which we can determine whether or not we are truly reconciled if we continue in the faith. Now, here is a question for everyone here tonight, myself more than anyone are you continuing in the faith? Do you act out the reconciliation that God has done? And most importantly, has God even reconciled you? I posit, posit, posit uh, that if you do not actively and continuously act out the reconciliation, then you have not been reconciled to God. And if you have not been reconciled to God, 
I plead with you to heed his call to you this evening. God is calling out for you to repent of your sins, to trust in the sufficiency of the death of Christ on the cross to make peace between you and God, to take you, the object of God's judgment and wrath, who deserves nothing more than eternal damnation in a place called hell, to turn and plead for the clemency of a merciful God who wills for you to be reconciled to Him. Now that being said, perhaps it would be helpful to lay out exactly what it looks like to continue in the faith. What does it look like in solid, concrete, day-to-day terms And how can one do this? First and foremost, I would like to stress that one cannot continue in the faith if you don't have faith, if you have not been reconciled to God. We have established that the natural condition of the human subject is alienation and hostility. And that to be in such a condition is to not only refuse to submit to the laws of God, but to be utterly unable to. And as such, the unreconciled human subject is wholly the object of the wrath of God and will continue to be so, but for the unmerited grace and mercy of God. Reconciliation is an act of God's unmerited grace. That being said, in order to be able to continue in the faith, one must first possess the faith. And to possess the faith one must experience the amazing, inexplicable, unmerited, undeserved mercy and grace of God by trusting in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ to take us from objects of judgment to sons and daughters of God. Repent. Believe. Turn to Christ. Trust in His saving work. And that does not just go for those who are lost. That goes for everyone who has been reconciled. Repentance and belief is continuous. Turning to Christ is continuous. Now for the one who has been reconciled, who has pled for the clemency and mercy of God and experienced His grace, continuing in the faith is simply the logical outworking of their reconciliation. And back to the question, what does this look like? We see in the text, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. First and foremost, to continue in the faith is to not shift from the hope of the gospel. Now, what is the hope of the gospel? It is precisely what allows us to continue in the faith to begin with. The hope of the gospel is the hope of reconciliation of sinners to God by the unmerited grace of of God. Now, is anyone else picking up a trend here? There seems to be a pretty heavy emphasis on God and a relative lack of focus on man. There is a reason for this. It is God who saves us. It is God who keeps us. And it is God who is the focus when we are continuing in the faith that God has given us in the first place. So when we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, we are not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is God. God is our focus. God is our hope. Our ability to continue in the faith is rooted in our hope in Him. And when we are firm in our hope in God, then what? This still doesn't give us what to do in concrete terms. Fortunately for us, the text gives us a solid example of what it looks like to not shift from the hope of the gospel. And I will admit, 
It's an example that I don't like because it's an extremely hard example. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, here it is, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We have a concrete example of what the outworking of a solid grounding in the hope of the gospel looks like in the person of the Apostle Paul. Just as Paul became a minister of the gospel, we too become ministers of the gospel. And as such, every aspect of our lives ought to have the ultimate goal of propagating the gospel. Now, I will uh, clarify here. I'm not saying, nor do I believe that Scripture suggests that every particular act we do has to be some calculated effort towards a particular act of evangelism. Clearly, there are actions which are wholly permissible to do because they're fun, because you know we derive pleasure from them, because they're necessary, and these activities which we do for their own sake is, is fine, and we, we just do them for their own sake. However, when we amuse ourselves, when we take pleasure in something just for doing it, or when we take care of business that we have to do to eat, why do we do it? It's kind of a weird question. You know, you would think you just do it for the sake of it, but why do you do something for the sake of doing it? Do we take pleasure purely for the pleasure of it? Or because we're acting out of the capacity for pleasure given to us by God for His glory? When we eat or work, do we eat or work just to eat or work? Or do we do so to the glory of God and so that by doing so, we might eventually, or we might have the chance to make His glory known to the world. It's precisely this that I mean when I say that every facet of our lives ought to be devoted to the propagation of the gospel. Every action we take, even those that do not directly involve evangelism per se, ought to point back to God. Every act of pleasure, every necessary action, ought to bring glory to God. And we ought to do these actions with the thought of glorifying Him in mind. There is, of course, direct propagation of the gospel as well. Direct personal evangelism. Paul, being a minister of the gospel, made his uh, life goal the proclamation of the gospel everywhere he went. Likewise, directly telling others about the gospel is part and parcel of who we are and what we do. And it is, in fact the primary outworking of our reconciliation and of our hope in God. Wherever we are, whatever station in life we occupy, we must tell others about the hope that is to be had in God, the hope of sinners being reconciled by the grace of God. Finally, we see Paul as a man who is constantly engaged in repentance, prayer, and the study of the Word. We must do these things ourselves. It is of utmost importance that we constantly repent of our sins, that we constantly pray, and that we constantly engage the Word. It's also crucial that we constantly engage the Word. And by engage the Word, I'm not simply talking about skimming through something and tossing the Bible aside. I mean really engaging with the Word and delving into it. But that's a, that's a different sermon. In just a moment, the band will come up and play an invitation. If you are one who has been reconciled to God, I want to encourage you to pray with Him with thanks. And if you feel the need to pray about your relationship with Him, the altar is open. 
If you are one who has not experienced the grace of God, then I plead with you to repent and seek the clemency of God. I plead with you to turn from your alienation and hostility to the sacrifice that Christ has made in His body of flesh by His death on the cross so that you can be reconciled to God and brought back to the relationship with Him that human beings were created to have. If you would, please bow your heads and pray with me. God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for grace. Thank you for the fact that you reconcile your creation that hates you. You reconcile your hateful, hostile, and alienated creation back to yourself out of sheer grace. And God, thank you so much that it's nothing we do. Because if it was something that we did, we would have no hope at all. God, um, I pray that if anyone needs to come to the altar, they would. And primarily, I pray that glory be brought to you. Hallowed be thy name.